Andreas Antonopoulos is a Bitcoin researcher, journalist, and evangelist. Andreas, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Jeff. When this episode airs, Software Engineering Daily is already going to have aired a few episodes about the basic aspects of Bitcoin. So I want to skip straight to interesting questions, and I encourage you to take the gloves off because... Um, you know, you have a lot of strong opinions, and Bitcoin is a subject where strong opinions with a stated degree of uncertainty are not only excusable, but really valuable. And Bitcoin is a fundamental change to how our world works, and we should not be reticent about that. So with that said, what are the subjects within the Bitcoin community that are most taboo? Well, I, I think um, in the Bitcoin community, some of the taboo subjects are really the societal taboos, specifically the idea that uh, Bitcoin got some of its early success in areas of uh, gray economies like gambling and that uh, Bitcoin is being driven by, um, uh, in some cases, pornography or um, illicit money transfers, uh, people trying to evade uh, taxes or currency controls in, in various uh, countries where, where such things are completely out of control. Um, I think people are reluctant to talk about the role the gray or black markets play in Bitcoin, or at least played, especially in the early days. But um, I think that's really funny because every single technology... Uh, that's that's ever been disruptive has always had its roots in some of the gray market and illicit activities. The the truth is that in areas of the economy where the friction is greatest, um, where the risks are higher, as are the rewards, uh, there will be uh, the use of um, cutting edge technology as an advantage. So it's not surprising. Um, the first telephones were used by criminals. The first cars were used by criminals. The first, uh, you know, every, every invention that has really changed the world um, initially is used by segments of the population that, uh, th that are living on the cutting edge uh, of technology because they're on the wrong edge of the law. And um, that's neither surprising, nor should we shy away from it. You know, so, the, truth is, the truth is that more than half of the world economy is gray markets. And, um, you know, those gray markets are underserved by uh, payment facilities and, and uh, money that uh, offers users security. And so when you have a system of money that makes it more secure to trade in some of the areas where risks are higher, of course people are going to use the more secure money. So those things about gray markets, those are certainly uh, ideas that are taboo from the standpoint of uh, the general public looking into Bitcoin. Um, but is there anything within the most... Well, no, I, I think there are taboos within the Bitcoin community and that okay. people, people don't want to talk about the, the, the very real fact that when... Um, when some uh, county sheriff in Illinois decides to um, threaten Visa and MasterCard and force them to stop uh, serving a website like Backpage.com, which has been just because that one's been in the news recently, and that's a classified uh, services that, that involves a lot of uh, various adult activities, most of which are not illegal, uh, most of which are perfectly legal, but... You know, this moralistic county sheriff, if he had illegal activity, 
he would have used their broad prosecutorial discretion to go after it, but they can't actually um, go after any activity um, on behalf of Backpage because it's protected by the First Amendment and because a lot of the activity or most of the activity on the site is perfectly legal. But they want to apply certain moralistic uh, uh, prejudice onto this site. You know, it, it, it uh, offends their... Uh, narrow sense of morality and uh, and it certainly helps the resume so what they do is extrajudicially which which you know in this country under the rule of law should be abhorrent to us all uh, putting pressure on the credit card companies to cut off a business that is doing legitimate business and has never been convicted of anything well the fact that at that point um, that service turns to Bitcoin should not be surprising um, but again, you know, a lot of people in the Bitcoin community don't want to talk about the fact that uh, gray markets exist for a reason. They exist either because uh, the law is being ap applied unfairly or unequally or because people live in, in societies uh, that have oppression and dictators and tyrants and uh, predatory banks and uh, governments that steal from their people. And, and so gray economies is how they get away from that. And it's okay to acknowledge that Bitcoin is a solution uh, for people who live in the gray areas of our world. Do you think that gray markets uh, exist on a totally separate pole than uh, perfectly legal markets? Or is it some sort of gradient between the two? And is Bitcoin a function for uh, reducing the the frictions along that gradient. Oh, absolutely. I mean, black markets, if you if you like to take the term black markets, you could say are the illegal term, the illegal side of that term. And white markets supposedly are the legal side of the term. And putting aside uh, kind of the racist connotations of the origins of those <laughs> words, um, the gray is all of the stuff in between, which in most cases is perfectly legal or is legal in many jurisdictions. You know, the, the stuff that's illegal in some jurisdictions can be ridiculous. You, you can't buy video games in some jurisdictions. You can't uh, do political speech in some jurisdictions. You can't buy an apartment without the government taking 60% of the value in tax. Uh, and so would a person in those circumstances buy a, bit, uh, a video game with uh, Bitcoin evading the law? Um, would a person buying an apartment transfer the money abroad with Bitcoin to evade a 60% tax by a government that's you know, dying of hyperinflation and trying to tax everything? Uh, so, you know, the, the, these gray areas, um, it's, a, it's a great privilege to live in a world where you have some support of the rule of law and justice system that can actually allow you to live in a, in a white market. And uh, that's wonderful. The problem is that the vast majority of the world doesn't live like that. And in those areas, there is tremendous economic friction. And there's also the possibility of violence and theft. Uh, and Bitcoin, by bringing higher levels of security to transactions, actually removes a lot of those things. It removes the possibility of violence. It removes the possibility of theft. Um, and therefore, it's a very reasonable and, and predictable that uh, Bitcoin will flourish first in those areas. That doesn't mean it's suited specifically to those areas, it doesn't mean it's a currency for illegal activities. It's a currency. Illegal activities is something society does. The fact that they use one currency versus another, you know, quite honestly, every single dollar bill you pick up has traces of cocaine on it because someone uh, rolled it up and used it to snort cocaine up their nose. Uh, you know, the, the, the currency that is promoting most of the illegal activity on this planet, let's not kid ourselves, is the US dollar, not Bitcoin. 
but uh, certainly the media likes to portray it as such. What do you think of when you hear people say the phrase, we know Bitcoin is the first real cryptocurrency, but the big question is whether it will be the last? Well, I, I think this is the whole, um, you know, Bitcoin is MySpace, what is Facebook? Um, and uh, first of all, the ironic thing is, of course, that Bitcoin is not the first cryptocurrency. Um, Bitcoin is the grandchild of a long series of cryptographically based currencies that started almost immediately after um, the invention of uh, the Diffie-Hellman algorithm and, and the Rivas-Chamir algorithm for public key cryptography. Almost immediately after that, people started thinking of applications of public key cryptography and asymmetric cryptography to the, uh, to the concern of money. So in the uh, mid-80s, we start seeing all of these uh, papers and and prototypes. And by the early 90s, we see companies like DigiCash doing the first forms of digital cash. And dozens and dozens and dozens of currencies came and went in that time, all of them suffering from a fatal flaw of centralization. Bitcoin is the first decentralized, uh, cryptographically based digital currency, but it's not the first digital currency and it's not the first cryptographically based currency. And it represents the lessons from all of the previous failures. Uh, will something else come along? It's actually quite difficult to bootstrap a currency. And so in many ways, the fact that Bitcoin achieved bootstrap level uh, in the first three years and then survived the next three is, is a rather unique moment in history. It doesn't happen easily. It doesn't happen often. And the chances of it happening again um, in the face of uh, much more knowledge about the space is pretty slim. So Bitcoin has a, a compelling early advantage here that is going to be very difficult to overcome. I think that if something replaces Bitcoin, it will be because Bitcoin failed from the inside rather than because something better came along. Uh, Bitcoin being open source, being a dynamic and flexible environment, if something better comes along, uh, chances are that Bitcoin can pluck that feature and adopt it and then carry all of the existing benefits of network effect and broad adoption, deployed infrastructure, massive capital investment, uh, trained uh, developers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so you ta started talking some about um, the how the computer science breakthroughs led to um, led to Bitcoin uh, actually being conceived of. What are the biggest questions in distributed systems today, and how does that relate to Bitcoin? I mean, distributed systems is still a very young science, and the, and there are enormous questions. Uh, even even uh, now, we're seeing. Every few months, um, some uh, very important papers about doing things like state synchronization among distributed systems, uh, which is a, a classic problem in distributed systems, which is how do you synchronize information across distances with participants that may uh, come and go. They may have uh, non-permanent connections uh, that may not trust the other parties. And then how do you do it in the most efficient manner to reduce the amount of data that is being transmitted between, uh, between nodes in a system? All of these things are still being researched regardless of Bitcoin. But what's interesting is that now many of these uh, evolutions and uh, developments are finding a very, very immediate application in Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin is distributed systems 
with the motivation of profit. Uh, Bitcoin is distributed systems applied to money, so the stakes are high. The invested money already and the profit possibilities. Um, so there is a lot of companies interested in taking the latest theoretical uh, research and applying it in, a, in an industry that is currently growing uh, at a tremendous rate. And so with Bitcoin, you know, we've seen it as the fusion of these multiple ideas from distributed systems and computer science. And um, distributed systems itself seems to um, succeed as uh, this combinatorial froth of the of different technologies that are in, invented within it. So you know you have you have Paxos and uh, Raft and three phase commit and all these ideas seem to have synergy. And Bayou um, is 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 the future of distributed systems uh, analogous to? Uh, the the breakthrough of Bitcoin, where the, uh, much of the future of distributed systems is going to be synergies between past inventions within distributed systems? I think it's always been like that. Uh, but I think what's more interesting is that a lot of the difficulty in applying distributed systems was creating a platform big enough where you could pr produce certain distributed system um, principles or characteristics or artifacts, if you like, that were emergent properties of the system on a broad scale. Uh, Bitcoin is interesting because if you look at it just as a currency, it's one thing, but if you look at it as a platform, a distributed systems platform, it actually delivers to the end users who have a public key cryptography infrastructure overlaid on top of it, it delivers some very important distributed systems primitives. So the ability to do time-based sequencing and registration of information and um, to be able to resolve state conflicts uh, and all of the other capabilities that Bitcoin has within the scripting language, all of these have broad applicability to distributed systems well beyond the concept of currency. So really, Bitcoin is uh, an applied uh, implementation of the most cutting-edge technologies in distributed systems, backed by a monetary incentive and game-theoretical um, system of checks and balances that allows you to develop high levels of trust uh, in these uh, primitives that are delivered as a network service, primitives of trust, such as resolving signatures, sequencing transactions, um, atomicity, uh, spendability, verifiability, unforgeability, all of these principles then can be used to, to develop higher order distributed systems applications. Um, it, is, it is the most exciting uh, de distributed and decentralized systems platform that, that we've ever seen. And uh, because of the financial incentive and the use of the currency, it's spreading really, really fast. So in fact, you know, Bitcoin is, is rapidly getting to the point where it's going to be the uh, second largest public key infrastructure in the world after uh, the DoD. So it's the largest civilian deployment of public key infrastructure, which is uh, quite shocking. A broader question about computer science. Um, do you think that Moore's Law is a benchmark of computational effectiveness that doesn't really make much sense anymore? Like, it seems like we're more concerned with uh, how, how effective is the network as a whole? How effective are our algorithms that are routing information throughout the network? Does Moore, is Moore's Law kind of this, like, deprecated idea? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's just that Moore's Law has come to mean more than just Moore's Law. 
so Moore's law, as originally stipulated by Gordon Moore, is that the density of uh, of transistors on a silicon chip will double approximately every eighteen months. The more generalized principle of Moore's law is that computing power doubles every couple of years, or it, for the same computing power, you pay half the cost. Um, so those are the implications of the doubling of transistors, and we're seeing that. Um, quite solidly and comfortably continue. It's, it's continuing in the labs, it's continuing in practice. Uh, more importantly are the offshoots of Moore's Law, because the ability to pack transistors usually involves the ability to manipulate matter at the nanoscale, which has implications for the ability to create um, persistent storage mechanisms, such as hard drives. So then the offshoot of Moore's law is that because you can pack more transistors, because to do that you're, you're doing a lot of nanoscale physics um, and nanoscale engineering, now you can build hard drives that double in capacity every two years or sometimes even faster. And because these electronics are driving uh, fiber optics and the construction of fiber and... Uh, driving the electronics and optical interfaces on fiber optics. That means the bandwidth is also growing approximately at the same rate, just a bit slower. Um, and so, really, if you take it as a generalized thing, which is that computing technology, communications, and storage are all increasing at a greater than linear rate, um, that has very deep implications for how you engineer technology, because in many cases, it's not even worth optimizing certain things if you can simply wait a year um, and run it on hardware that's twice as fast with twice the bandwidth and twice the storage. Um, so we'll see. I mean, these, are, these have really important implications in Bitcoin itself because they address the fundamental issues of scalability and optimization in the Bitcoin protocol. How do you take this uh, system that is currently supporting perhaps one or two million users and scale it to a point where it can support a billion users. The previous theme on Software Engineering Daily before Bitcoin was big data. And I did several interviews with people about topics like Pig and uh, Apache Spark and uh, Hadoop. And what, what is at the intersection of big data technologies and Bitcoin? Well, I, there, there's enormous amount of uh, intersection or the um, commonality between big data. Uh, the blockchain itself is a big data uh, data store. It's, uh, not only is it in, in the gigabytes in size, but if you then uh, extract the information, analyze it, process it, and create uh, the kind of uh, indexing and metadata extraction from transactions, the scripts inside them, the addresses and their relationships... Uh, it quickly explodes to a much bigger data set. Uh, so if you take the base blockchain of about 30 gig and you analyze it, you end up with a data, a data set uh, in the hundreds of gigabytes. Um, and then you can start doing some very interesting analytics on top of that. So what it does is two things. From one perspective, what you're doing is you have a big data data store, but it's one that is universal and synchronized across all systems on a persistent and trustworthy manner. That, that's never happened before. The second is that for the first time, we have insights into economics on a real-time basis. Uh, every aspect of economics, economics has never really been a hard science uh, because you're dealing with actors 
or agents, as they're called in economics, who are humans making supposedly rational decisions. But the problem is that you can't really observe these decisions in real time. What you can do is you can collect statistics, and to a margin of error and uh, statistical approximation, ex post facto, six months after the fact, you can look at, oh, so what was the velocity of money? What was the uh, growth rate? What was the uh, demographics of the users? How did these develop? How did the markets develop? Well, with Bitcoin, for the first time, you can do computational macroeconomics in real time. You can do macroeconomics and observe the, the velocity of money in real time on a network, not to a statistical approximation, but in absolute terms. And you can do that uh, with certain overlays. You know, If you have data from merchants, for example, you can do computational macroeconomics. And microeconomics uh, being the study of uh, specific markets... Uh, within the economy, uh, regions, uh, products, industries, etc. And again, that's something you could never do other than as a looking back in hindsight uh, to a statistical approximation. So this is really going to bring not just uh, a whole new area of study for big data, but it, but it is also arguably a new discipline in economics that didn't exist before. And this system that aggressively, that it updates more aggressively in real time, I think that this is like there's there's a traditional notion in uh, in finance that the efficient market hypothesis states that you are getting constant updates to the system, which is not really true. Like efficient market hypothesis is probably more like this eventual consistency sort of thing. Like maybe you know that what we assume to be uh, the efficient market hypothesis is actually you know something that that is going to occur in the future. Or what? How do you think that um, Bitcoin or this 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 uh, real time updating economic system? How does that contrast with what we what we have referred to in the past as the efficient market hypothesis? Well, Bitcoin is uh, a commodity that is traded globally 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, which that in itself is uh, unusual. There aren't many commodities that are traded on a real-time basis around the clock, around the world uh, simultaneously. Um, and all of the transactions are visible in real time. Uh, the Some of the internals of how Bitcoin works, specifically the mining, uh, the mining power and difficulty equation, that uh, continuously adjusts the difficulty of mining on Bitcoin to account for the market size of the miners and to keep stability around a 10-minute issuance uh, time limit. Uh, that, that equation is probably one of the most uh, directly observable efficient markets in operation. It's, it's quite astonishing how, how that adjusts uh, quite, quite efficiently to changes in the market conditions. But you asked me earlier today, we talked a bit about taboos within um, the Bitcoin community. And the second part, I think, of your question was, what are the taboos uh, in the broader economy about Bitcoin? I want to flip that around just for a second and say probably the biggest taboo we have right now, the thing we can talk about in Western uh, societies, is the fact that the efficient uh, market doctrine died in 2008. And that since 2008, we are living in a centrally planned economics environment. We have now accepted uh, the ideas of centrally planned economics that were thoroughly rejected during the Cold War. Uh, now they are accepted instead of, um, instead of the uh, president, emperor, or a prime minister essentially planning the economy. We have uh, effectively an unelected board of the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve chairperson 
And, and they are now uh, all around the world, across dozens of central banks. They are actively buying equities. They are actively intervening in the markets in order to do what they call price support, um, which is basically distorting the price discovery mechanism across the world. And they're pouring uh, the most uh, unfathomably enormous amounts of money ever seen by, by humanity uh, as zero percent interest, free money, which in itself causes a massive distortion in the investment uh, outcomes into these economies, blowing one bubble after the next. Uh, this is not normal economics. This is, um, you know, so let's compare it. Some people would say Bitcoin is this radical experiment in money of the last six years. Well, guess what? That's not the radical experiment in money. The radical experiment in money is 21 central banks setting their interest rates at zero for six years. That is the most unprecedented radical experiment in money. And that uh, money experiment has taken a few billion people hostage with it along for the ride without opt-in. Uh, Bitcoin's opt-in. You don't want to participate in the crazy experiment of Bitcoin. Don't buy any. Um, but unfortunately, you can't opt out from the dollar, the euro the yen, the yuan, or any of the other crazy monetary experiments happening today, and the outcome is not going to be fun. Great. So let's talk more about that unfun outcome. Like, what is going to be, um, you know, or let's put it in most optimistic terms. Let's say we have a eventual migration from from fiat to cryptocurrency. How will that transition occur? Will there be some sort of steady state where we have you know, side by side, these there's some sort of like comfortable exchange rate between the two, or is it just going to be like one will suddenly render the other obsolete? Or what? What do you? I mean, obviously the future is hard to predict, but maybe you can present some some conceivable scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can give you my perspective on this, and of course this is utter speculation. But here's the point I want to first push back on, and that's the assumption that you will have a migration from traditional economies into the new economy of cryptocurrencies. This is very much like the question of asking, in 1992, how many fax machines will the internet replace? How many phone calls will eventually be internet only? And the point is, it doesn't matter. Because this is not simply a matter of replacing existing economic activity in one realm with the same economic activity using a digital currency. That's the wrong way of looking at it. And in fact, it's a common fallacy. People who see digital currencies as just currencies don't understand the platform and network effect. Turns out most of the economics of what happened on the internet were not replacing existing industries. They didn't make uh, a giant new industry to do long distance phone calls and faxing. Uh, they represented entirely new economic activity that had no parallel in the past. They represented the development of new economic growth, new opportunity, new jobs, new industries that had no previous parallel. In the process, uh, several old industries uh, went belly up, uh, but they weren't replaced like for like. In fact, the transitions were rather discontinuous. And this is the same as uh, many other things. This is not about how many stables will be replaced by garages and how many hay markets will be replaced by gasoline fuel when the automobile comes along. No, it redesigns the very urban landscape you live in. And in the end, counting horses and hay really misses the point. Um, so we're not going to see a transition from fiat. I don't think we're ever going to see a transition from fiat to cryptocurrencies, at least not in the way we expected. Rather, what will happen is the cryptocurrencies will begin to 
um, grow independently of fiat. Uh, they'll develop their own market dynamics to serve markets that have never been served, markets that are geographic and demographic, such as serving the other five to six billion people who don't have access to international finance and capitalism, uh, serving remote and rural areas that don't have access to brick-and-mortar infrastructure but do have access to cell phones, serving uh, niche economic activities uh, that previously did not support the development of infrastructure or the friction was too high, uh, person-to-person trade across massive distances and borders instantaneously, uh, new forms of micropayments, uh, new products and services, a completely new uh, model of the sharing economy, autonomous systems that can own and control money independent of people. These are the hallmarks of cryptocurrency in the future, and they don't replace fiat activity. It's not about doing more of our shopping on Bitcoin and less of our shopping on dollars. It's about doing things with cryptocurrencies that we could never do before. Um, and then at that point, you know, you you exist in a world where there are certain things for which the dollar is is the main currency, and of course, you're still probably paying your taxes in dollars and things like that. But there are other things that it simply doesn't make sense to use dollars because uh, they're slow and insecure and can't cross borders easily. And if you think about that from a global perspective, then there is a place for global transnational borderless currencies that is simply not served by any currency today. Um, and so it's not about Bitcoin becoming the world reserve currency. It's about changing the very concept of a world reserve currency and instead becoming the first uh, online currency and the, the Internet's currency, which has no flag, has no country, has no borders and is replacing and displacing no one because you simply don't care about that stuff. In the end, the Internet didn't replace fax machines. It just made the whole concept kind of quaint and silly. There seems to be two rivaling societal factions which create a lot of the noise around Bitcoin uh, in the present day and inhibit a clear, true narrative from evolving. And these two factions that I see are, on one hand, you have the anti-intellectuals of the world who are afraid of technology because they don't really understand it. And then on the other extreme, there's like this, this technocratic elite which might say... Bitcoin is the future, and if you don't get it, then I do not want to talk to you. And between these two sides, you sit, and you tell people, look, Bitcoin is the future, and if you don't get it, I'm going to be patient, and I'm going to explain it to you. Do you think that's accurate? Is that how you see yourself? Uh, not really. I mean, um, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it. It's very flattering what you say, but... Um, you know, people have different skills, right? So some some people have skills that are just incredible programmers or incredible mathematicians or um, visionaries in computer science and distributed systems. And I, I can program. I'm a computer scientist. I, I'm not very good at mathematics, but uh, good enough to be able to explain a concept. And, you know, that's not my strong area. My strong area is taking complex things and explaining them in human terms and simple terms to people. So I just went with what I was good at and tried to use that to contribute to the Bitcoin community and do something that I really enjoy because I'm passionate about Bitcoin. Um, but it wasn't really in juxtaposition to the technocratic elites who are doing their thing. It was quite honestly without, without the people who are too busy building really, really important, serious and interesting shit, uh, there would be nothing for me to talk about. And, and while I am also doing my own little edge of innovation and building things myself, you know, there are some in Bitcoin. There are some people who are, are just absolutely uh, 
brilliant, brilliant people uh, with incredible brains who couldn't explain um, anything to anyone, uh, and that's okay because instead, what they're doing is uh, is is working and building better solutions for Bitcoin. So everybody has their little place. And what are some tips on this explanatory function or some this evangelistic function that you've put yourself in? Because I think this is actually a super important role. Like especially you know, as we move forward in the future, if technology is accelerating. It seems like we and and increasingly has an effect on abstract technologies have an increasing effect on on the general public. There's a bigger and bigger role for people who can translate this uh, obscure technology to the broader public. So, what are some tips on how you do that? Um, well, first of all, I've been doing public speaking and teaching since I was 15 years old. So I've really had a lot of practice. And especially with Bitcoin, I explain the same things again and again and again to a very broad variety of people from all walks of life on a daily basis. So again, I get a lot of practice. By the time most of the people hear an answer to a question, I've heard that question a hundred times. I've tried to explain it a hundred different times, and I've found what works. So it's a process of trial and error and practice. Um, other than that, I think it's really important to, to, to do three things. The first one is to always remember that um, our personal experience, uh, and I'm speaking primarily of uh, Western societies, or even more so about technologically advanced, uh, male-dominated, uh, mostly white uh, Western societies with lots of young engineers like Silicon Valley do not represent the world and do not represent the most important demographics for Bitcoin, who are the unbanked, the underbanked, and hopefully those we can soon make debanked uh, and put them directly on to controlling their own money. Um, it's really important to always remember that what's important to me, what's important to my peers, what's important to the people around me is not what's important to Bitcoin uh, because we do not represent, we represent a tiny fraction, 5 to 10% of the world's population, the most privileged, uh, who have the most access to everything uh, and for whom money is easy. And so if, from our perspective, it's very easy to forget why Bitcoin. Because after all, I can do most of these things with, with Visa. I can do most of these things with, you know, of course, uh, Visa isn't a platform. Visa isn't free. Visa isn't decentralized. Visa isn't uncensorable. Um, but to most Americans, those are marginal things that, that really are hard to explain. Um, it's you, not hard to explain economic inclusion. So you mentioned some of the types of people who are building technologies that they they cannot even explain but they they can intuit that they're useful or something like that. So, what are some of the most bleeding edge things you've seen in the Bitcoin blockchain world recently? Oh, well, I mean, there is so much stuff. Um, first of all, you got to realize that the innovation leads the practical application by about 2 to 3 years. Uh, we're beginning to see now practical application of technologies that were developed in 2012, um, multi-signature and hierarchical deterministic wallets and things like that. Uh, we're beginning to see more use of technologies that have existed for a while that are getting refined and improved, like uh, lock time and time control transactions. Um, on top of these, we're now seeing some of the uh, new applications coming online combining those capabilities. 
Uh, one of the most exciting of recent times has been the implementation and demonstration of payment channels uh, for use in micropayment technology. So um, several companies have now uh, demonstrated prototypes or even fully running systems that can do micropayments for streaming video, for example. Uh, for we're, we're seeing some ideas around Wi-Fi sharing um, and things like that. Uh, what, what's really interesting about this is that we're looking at using the building components of Bitcoin to do micropayments down to a time granularity of 200 milliseconds and a payment granularity of one Satoshi, hundred thousandth of a penny. Uh, now, think about that for just a moment. This is like, if you can't come up with world-changing applications when, when you have those kinds of tools, that kind of platform at your service, uh, you're not thinking hard enough. But So there's micropayments, and then what we're seeing, interestingly, is, is a whole other area of, of research on confidential transactions and advanced uh, kind of contracts and scripts in Bitcoin uh, and the development of sidechains technology. So all of this is still in the very early stages. Uh, the, high, the, the theoretical uh, papers have been written. The first prototype implementations are coming out. It's going to take another year or two before we start seeing some of these mainstream implementations. But Bitcoin is not the same as it was in 2009. It is changing all the time. And the rate of innovation is actually accelerating with more amazing, mind-blowing things being built on top of Bitcoin. What about file storage? File storage is another application that we're seeing micropayment channels, of course, to be used. Um, there's a couple of different approaches to file storage, but we're, we're seeing that Bitcoin enables a kind of a broader platform for decentralized file storing and a kind of sharing economy of hard drives uh, with strong encryption, uh, with completely decentralized storage, and with integrity guarantees through registration on the blockchain. And uh, there's probably half a dozen prototypes in that space. How far away do you think we are, and just whatever speculative guess you want to make, from having like a Dropbox? Like a, like for the, from the user po- point of view, you would just have like a Dropbox, but it would exist on some sort of uh, blockchain-related file storage technology, therefore it would be a lot cheaper, more secure. Um, is that, we already is that have still, that. We, we already, we already have, have that. that. I mean, um, so the question is, do, do you really need to do the file storage itself on the blockchain? Probably not. What you do is you use the blockchain in order to do registration and, and uh, asset ownership, as well as uh, key management and distribution, or you use similar technology. BitTorrent Sync has existed now for almost two years, and that represents uh, a huge uh, step forward in terms of decentralized file storage. So we already have that. Uh, The question is, how many of these applications can we deploy in a practical sense to a broad public and make these the default applications that are just as easy to use as the centralized services, just as efficient uh, at least, and then move beyond that and make them more secure, more efficient, um, more performant than centralized solutions. And, and that's where you start, uh, you start seeing some interesting effects come in. How do you feel about 21 Inc.? Um, well, I, I'm not quite sure what 21 Inc. is going to end up doing or how they're going to do that. Um, I am uh, you know, acquainted with Balaji Srinivasan, who's the founder of 21 Inc., and some of the other principles I know. And I think... What they're doing is really uh, 
pushing forward on this vision of Satoshi as expressed in the, in the original paper, which was one CPU, one vote, uh, essentially they're trying to decentralize mining. Whether that's going to be successful, whether there's a place for that, it remains to be seen. It is still a venture. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited to see kind of that kind of effort and investment being brought to bear on this problem. Is there anything fundamental that you would change about the Bitcoin protocol if you could? Um, I, I think uh, the, the, the truth is that there are always areas where you can nitpick and, and point out areas where it could be different. However, um, I think it's, it's important to realize that uh, what we have today is something that has been able to scale to $10 billion. That's never happened in the history of humanity before. Uh, what we have today is something that scales globally and is extremely secure, robust, and resilient. That's never happened before. So would a slightly different version work slightly differently and produce the same result? Who knows? I mean, the reason Bitcoin is where it is today was a confluence of historic circumstance, uh, technology, just the right level of maturity, adoption, political conditions, etc., to all coming together at just the right time to allow this thing to launch, grow, sustain itself, and survive in a very turbulent environment during a time where we're facing unprecedented monetary crisis influencing or even perhaps infecting dozens of uh, traditional currencies. So it doesn't happen in a vacuum, and it doesn't... The, I, I think this kind of technological utopianism, the idea that there is a best solution or that the best solution wins is, is naive. I think in the end, what wins is the solution that was good enough at the right time in history uh, to be broadly adopted. We saw that I mean, TCP/IP wasn't the best trans- transport uh, protocol or the best internet protocol, um, and and yet not only did it um, gain a foothold and become enormous, but it's gotten to the point where it's almost impossible to introduce the new version of IP or new transport control protocols because it's so deeply embedded in the fabric of, uh, of society uh, and in the machines that we run around us. So I think the idea that Bitcoin can be improved, yes, it can be improved based on what we have. Um, and nitpicking from my armchair is, is not something that is really productive. No, I think, I think what you said is very true. Like um, the first week of episodes on Software Engineering Daily was about JavaScript. And JavaScript is essentially the story of one of these minimum viable technologies that was just good enough and then it just completely took off. And now JavaScript is becoming the lingua franca of the internet. And it was written in three days. It was a language that was originally written in three days and all these abstractions have been built on top of it and below it just because it was the product that was good enough. And that's that seems yeah. to be that seems to be a recurring theme. In um, fact, um, I think one of the more interesting parts of the JavaScript phenomenon have been the fact that XML that was built over uh, more than a decade with committees and extreme commitment and enormous amounts of money by so many organizations got displaced in less than five years by JSON, uh, kind of a much more loose, lightweight protocol. If you remember, the original uh, vision for email was uh, X400, uh, which preceded SMTP. And turns out simple mail transport worked. Uh, simple directory uh, services or lightweight directory services, LDAP 1 over X500, and in the end, JSON 1 over XML. Uh, sometimes the simple technology is far more effective at, at beating the committee-designed one. 
I think Bitcoin is is the same story. It's 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 not a massively over engineered protocol. It does some very basic things, does them well, and can scale globally. There seems to be a good a number a good number of people who have a fair amount of faith in, in Bitcoin. They'll they'll readily admit that Bitcoin makes sense as if nothing else, like a speculative bet. So why and and you'll you know you can have conversations with these people all the time, but many of them just do not own any Bitcoin. So what what is keeping this type of person from just buying fifty dollars in Bitcoin, just as a speculative play? Um, it's it's still very difficult to buy Bitcoin. I mean that's the simple answer. It's very difficult to buy Bitcoin, and, and furthermore, I think if you're coming at it from the position of a speculative play, you're missing the most important characteristics of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is in my mind, at least from my level of investment, a terrible speculative investment. It's way too volatile. Um, it's it's uh, small enough in terms of liquidity that it gets pushed around by media announcements uh, like crazy and bounces up and down in price. It's, a, it's not a very good speculative investment uh, unless you're willing to hold it for a very long term based on your understanding of the raw utility of the underlying technology and capabilities and what it can do to the world. In which case, it's not a speculative investment. Uh, in which case, you, you're really looking at a much longer time frame, and you're looking at it from the perspective of an industry-changing, um, disruptive technology. And, and those really don't ever play out in a linear fashion. And they don't... Uh, you know, The internet had to crash completely in 2000 to clear out a lot of the overinvestment before you started seeing some of the best applications come out. Um, and I think we've still got three or four more boom and bust cycles in Bitcoin, at least before you see it stabilizing. Um, why are people not buying Bitcoin? Because it's still very difficult to buy Bitcoin. And the reason it's difficult to buy Bitcoin is because we're still building the infrastructure. So it's just like trying to get DSL in 1993. Um, you would find very few, and, and or you'd have to buy a modem and God help you trying to set that piece of equipment up. Uh, I know many did, right? It's, it was very difficult to get on the internet in the beginning, and, and you had to be extra committed and really believe in this idea to do so. And it got easier and easier and easier. Um, I think the other thing is, I often tell people, don't buy Bitcoin. Earn it. Earn it. Um, the most important thing you can offer in exchange for Bitcoin is goods, products, and services. Um, use your labor. Uh, use your creativity and earn Bitcoin by charging other people in Bitcoin for, for work you do. Um, that bypasses a lot of the complexities of exchanges and the banking system. Is, do you think distributed systems is more about technology or more about philosophy? Well, you've, you've heard my previous uh, work in this space, so you'll probably guess that I think it's about philosophy. I think fundamentally what it is, is it represents a societal change that is being caused by the ability to scale uh, and is changing the way we organize. So the way I describe it is a three-step uh, progression whereby authority, trust, and many other fundamental societal institutions were first built on institutions, hierarchical organizations, uh, in most cases in the early days, very steep hierarchies with single people on top, uh, kings, tyrants, dictators, despots, uh, priests, and popes. 
and then uh, gradually over time, slightly smoother and flatter hierarchies, but still hierarchical organizations of people with policies and procedures and oversight and rules in order to allow us to organize a society. Well, we made a transition with the Internet, and we started uh, organizing around platforms, so the Internet being one of the most important platforms. And those are far less centralized, and they allow us to re-envision societal institutions as platform-based solutions. And now we're making the final shift, uh, it's happening more and more rapidly, moving from platforms to protocols. And protocols vest the power not in a specific operator like Twitter or Facebook um, uh, or Google, but instead they, they vest the power in a common understanding, a lingua franca, a common system of operation that everybody agrees to. Bitcoin, with its consensus uh, mechanism and its underlying protocol, is a tremendous tool for the decentralization of power, authority, trust, knowledge, and truth. And, and so, really, from a bigger perspective, decentralization is the final step in society's um, uh, millennia-long effort uh, to more equally distribute power, uh, justice, peace, uh, prosperity among uh, more and more people around the world. And so, institutions to platforms to protocols. So, absolutely, it is a philosophical thing. So, the first video I saw of you was... Uh, this 2015 talk you gave at Wired Money. And one thing that stood out was you were very enthusiastic and you also seemed you also seemed like you had I don't want to say like a temper because I don't that sounds like a negative connotation, but you are <laughs> you were extremely you know, you said and you've said it several times in in this in this conversation, you know, if you believe X, you're missing the point. And, and, and that's, that's characteristic of all these things that people focus on in Bitcoin where they're essentially missing the point. Um, but more importantly, in, in terms of your personal feelings on this matter, like how much of the time do you feel like a heretic? Um, in a time is, that, of... is, that, is that an inappropriate question? I don't know. <laughs> well, um... I don't like the word heretic because okay. we all know what happens to them. Um, I, I prefer um, I, I prefer thinking of myself as someone who is willing to speak truth. And sure. The, the, sorry. The reason I, the reason I said heretic is because you know do you feel like and there you know you mentioned a conversation where somebody asked you like you know are you a drug dealer right because you're involved in Bitcoin and it's like this absurd witch hunting. Uh, you know, heretical accusation stuff, and that—that's that's what I meant it from. I didn't mean it yeah. from the standpoint of like you are heretical in the sense that you are actually doing something bad. Well, I mean, I I I think that what you're saying, which is really interesting, is all of the examples you've used were people who spoke up against the established authority of the day, which was the church, and died for it. Um, the the point is that uh, to, to put it uh, to use a famous quote. Uh, in a time of universal deceit, uh, speaking the truth is an act of revolution. Uh, speaking the truth is only radical because lies are the currency of the day. Lies are how we uh, comfort ourselves uh, during a time of extreme crisis. 
And you've got to understand the context. I mean, I've done many talks. Some talks are optimistic, some talks are happy, some talks I'm talking to my community. At Wired Money, I was talking to a room full of bankers and investors who were very, very excited about taking the least revolutionary part of Bitcoin, uh, labeling it the blockchain, whitewashing the whole thing, controlling it, centralizing it, and turning it into the little pet plaything. Um, and I was there to remind them that Bitcoin is going to chew their, their foot off if they turn it into a pet plaything. Um, because this is not a technology that is willing to or able to be leashed, controlled, manipulated, co-opted, centralized, and censored. It's a technology that is disruptive precisely because it doesn't do those things. And it's about to disrupt one of the most powerful, corrupt, inefficient um, organizations and industries uh, on the planet and, and sources of power on the planet, which is international finance. And uh, it's about bloody time. And so from that perspective, what you saw in that particular presentation was me reacting to all of this mealy-mouthed, um, um, pretend... Uh, disruption, where it was like they were using the word revolutionize, which I, 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 I love. The word revolutionize has as little to do with something that's revolutionary as possible. Um, and, and it is the way uh, corporations and committees revolutionize things, uh, which is basically to strip them of anything revolutionary. Uh, th this, is, this is really funny because you had people there talking about, we want to disrupt our business from the inside out. And, and, and when you explain to them what Bitcoin can do, they immediately recoil and they're like, well, no, not, not that disruptive. Um, so I was a bit making fun of that. I was, but it was also, listen, I was paid to do a job there. And my job was to bring knowledge. And, and so in that context, the best thing I can do is shake people up, like wake them up. Listen, your industry just hit an iceberg. You can start bailing, you can start engineering, you can do some, but don't pretend this isn't happening because um, the industries that did pretend this wasn't happening ended up disappearing. Uh, banking is facing the most significant challenge in the last uh, several centuries. And it's facing exogenous challenges too from the crisis that it manufactured within itself. Um, but Bitcoin's there just to tip it over the edge. The dinosaur is the one slow to adapt, uh, slow to increase efficiency. The ones who don't care about customer satisfaction, the ones who put profit about above everything, including uh, the, their their customers' well-being uh, or even liberty and and life. Uh, those companies are about to get a nasty surprise, and I was there to bring that message. Um, sometimes you probably watched one of my more intense and um, uh, let's say radical videos. It was deliberately that for that specific audience. Um, but you'll see a, a whole range of emotions. I'm actually quite optimistic. I'm a happy-go-lucky guy, and um, you know what really excites me about this space is 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 not destroying the world banking system. It's it's seeing the light in the eyes of young people who see opportunity and are excited by innovation and technology and can see within this technology and others like it the possibility of a world that's different, a world that's more equitable, uh, more transparent, more fair. And and you know, for a generation that's had its entire life stolen from it, I, I think it's it's just really um, satisfying to see that. If you are one of these banks, like a J.P. Morgan or a Bank of America, the type of people that you're talking to in this situation, 
For one, what, what was their response? And two, if you are one of these companies, what do you do? Do you invest in Bitcoin? Do you try to figure out some way to leverage it? Well, the truth is that in many cases, there's absolutely nothing you can do. And the reason there's absolutely nothing you can do is because your business model itself and your entire stream of revenue is um, solidly, very solidly and, and strongly built around certain principles, uh, certain inviolable principles from your business model's perspective that Bitcoin just went and violated. So, you know... Uh, if your blockbuster and Netflix comes along, you can't just start renting videos and build an online service because your entire business model depends upon the acquisition and exploitation of real estate. And the one thing that just changed is you don't need any real estate. You can't fix that. You can't survive that. You are uh, a land-dwelling animal in the face of a tsunami. You are a fish in a lake that's emptied because of drought. You're not going to suddenly uh, convert your gills to oxygen breathing in a single generation. Um, so the, the truth is that a lot of these banks, especially the ones that are not consumer-facing, uh, whose primary mode of operation over the last decade, more strongly so, has become receiving free money from the Fed and misallocating it in enormous proportion and then paying themselves great bonuses for succeeding in a rigged market. I mean, that business model, it's dead. It's dead because it died, uh, uh, it, it committed suicide in 2008. Bitcoin isn't the reason. Um, but at the same time, Bitcoin shows an alternative path in the future. So, you know, a lot of these banks are not going to survive. Uh, that's the simple truth. Uh, banking as we know it is not going to survive. Does that mean that all banks are going away? Of course not. Many of them will adapt. They'll change their ways. They'll adapt to a much less profitable, much less world-controlling uh, environment where uh, the level of rampant financialization, uh, corruption, and immunity to prosecution is no longer something they can count of. And I welcome that. Thank you.